Hi, everybody. Thanks so much for coming and spending your beautiful lunchtime inside with us. I promise we have a very exciting presentation to keep you, uh, keep you entertained. Uh, we have Mike Tanner speaking today. He's a Cato Institute senior fellow who researches a variety of domestic policies focusing on health care reform, social welfare policy, and social security. Also under his direction, Cato launched the Project on Social Security Choice, which is widely considered to be the leading impetus for transforming the soon-to-be bankrupt system into a private savings program, which is the focus of our talk today. Time Magazine called Tanner one of the architects of the private accounts movement and Congressional Quarterly, quarterly named him one of the nation's five most influential experts on Social Security. So all of your Social Security questions can get answered today. And I also wanted to put a quick plug in for some great materials that we have today. In addition to going forward as you work on this issue, all of Cato's materials from new short papers, like the one we're focusing on today, to our longer publications are available to Hill staffers for free. So please reach out to me or any Cato staff whenever you guys want any research that we put together. And with that, I will turn it over to Mike. Well, thank you much. Appreciate it. Uh, appreciate you hardy souls or masochists or out here talking about Social Security when it's like that outside. So. Uh, you know, you must really care about this issue, uh, either that or you've lost the key to get back into your offices. Uh, <clears throat> want to talk a little bit about Social Security reform. Uh, it's not, uh, of course, been a topic of much discussion for the last uh, about six years. Uh, and we think it should be, in part because since it was last a topic for discussion, things haven't gotten any better. Uh, the fact is, as you can see in this chart here, uh, the Social Security's finances uh, have grown steadily worse. And in fact, this year, Social Security will actually run a deficit. That is, it will take in, or take in less in taxes than it sends out in benefits. Uh, now, of course, anywhere except here in Washington, you realize that when you spend more money than you take in, it indicates a problem. Uh, here, I realize that's not quite the same thing. But, uh, but the fact is, Social Security not only is running a deficit today, but it will run a deficit forever. Uh, Social Security in the past, people have been able to say, well, Social Security's not part of the budget problem. It's been running a surplus and so on. Well, that, it no longer does run a surplus, and it never will run a surplus again. Uh, if you look going forward, it continues to run a deficit in, infinitely in, into the future. And in fact, Social Security's total unfunded liabilities right now, uh, in discounted present value terms, are around $21 trillion. That is, if you had managed to have $21 trillion lying around and you were able to stick it in the bank and it earned 3% interest every year, uh, it would have enough money to pay all the benefits that are promised uh, under the program going forward. Uh, <clears throat> and we don't have $21 trillion lying around, so therefore, uh, it's a simple fact that Social Security will not be able to pay the benefits that are promised with the revenue that's coming in. Uh, either benefits will have to be reduced in the future or revenues will have to be increased. You either have to hike taxes or cut benefits uh, in order to make the system work. Now, at Cato, we've argued that what you're going to have to do if you're going to reduce benefits, we think a tax increase would be disastrous, uh, but we think that if you're going to reduce benefits, then in exchange for that reduction of benefits, you should give young people something in return. If they're going to have to eat their spinach, they should be able to get some ice cream for dessert. 
And we have suggested that in order to offset the loss of benefits they get through the current government-run system, they should be able to save privately at least some of their Social Security taxes through a personal account and invest those Social Security taxes in real assets that are in a real rate of return. Uh, now, this, of course, was the, uh, the famous you know, Social Security privatization discussion or personalization discussion or private accounts discussion, however you wanted to, to phrase it, uh, that went on. And recently, uh, we've had some volatility in the uh, stock market, and this has led a number of prominent Democrats, from President Obama to, uh, to Nancy Pelosi and others, to say, you know, thank God we never privatized Social Security, because if we'd had, all those seniors would be starving to death and eating cat food out there uh, because their personal accounts would have collapsed. They would have had nothing to rely on in retirement. Uh, and this has done a lot to scare off, I have to say, scare off a lot of people who had been supporting personal accounts in the past. They, they've sort of dropped that support. Mitt Romney, for example, uh, at one time was a supporter of personal accounts, but in his, uh, his book he wrote that he's no longer in favor of them because he's decided the stock market is just too risky uh, for people to, to invest in privately. Uh, now he just favors sort of cutting benefits without the, the personal account component to this. Uh, well, we decided actually to, to ask the question, uh, is that true? I mean, what would really happen if we'd allowed people to invest privately uh, over the years? Uh, what would that actually mean? Oh. I mean, the market has certainly been volatile. This is uh, the Dow Jones uh, over the last 40 years. Uh, you can see it's been up, it's been down. Uh, you know, markets, uh, markets do a lot of things. Uh, you can see it's been way down at some points and, uh, and relatively high up at, at others. Uh, and this is what is scary to people. You know, they, you see the market fell 500 points today and everybody thinks, well, you know, everybody's going to go home and eat cat food. You know, my, the old joke, you know, my 401k just became a 201k. Uh, but the fact is, we're not talking about short-term investment, uh, not with personal retirement accounts and not generally with, in, in terms of retirement. And the, the sort of short-term ups and downs of the market uh, really have a lot less influence than what we're talking about when you talk about long-term investment, which is compounding uh, of those returns over time and the contributions over time. So what we did is we set up a, a situation uh, with, uh, we took uh, essentially three, Coming up very slowly here for some reason. Uh, we took three workers, and we suggested that uh, we'd have a, a high-income worker who is currently earning right at the wage cap. Uh, so they, uh, that worker is earning $106,800. We took a middle-income worker, which is uh, someone earning the median household income in this country, or about $49,455, and a low-income worker earning uh, $24,273. Uh, we assume that those workers uh, retired uh, on November 7th of last year. So this was when we did the study. We assumed that that was the date that worker retired, <clears throat> which means they began work and pay paying into the Social Security system <coughs> 40 years ago. And we assume they all started work on uh, January 1st, uh, 40 years in 1971. So that they had 40 years uh, of work history. Uh, I guess they went to college and didn't get in the labor force at 18, but we'll, uh, we assume that they were working for 40 years. Now, they did obviously didn't earn that wage 
their entire 40-year history. So what we did was to adjust for that, we backed their wages down by the wage growth each year. So we assumed that basically that la uh, this was in 2011, they were earning the 106800 for the higher income worker. The year before, he earned that amount less the amount of wage growth over the one-year period. So we backed out each year for 40 years their wage growth to find out what they started earning 40 years ago. And assuming that their wages grew in line with wage growth over that period every year, their, their wages increased until they earned this amount uh, at retirement. Uh, we then allowed three different types of investment portfolios. Uh, we suggested that they could invest in stocks, uh, and we chose an S&P 500 index fund. So it tracked the entire S&P, whatever the S&P did as a whole. That's what their stocks uh, did uh, if they invested in a stock fund. Uh, if they invested in a bond fund, we allowed them to invest entirely in bonds. Uh, that bond was considered a 50-50 fund between U.S. Treasuries. Uh, we used a 10-year bond uh, for U.S. Treasuries. And a 50, uh, fund that was corporate bonds, 50, uh, Moody AAA corporate bonds, and other sort of index funds uh, of, those, of those bonds. And then we finally also selected a 50-50 fund, uh, which was half the stocks and half the bonds. So we sort of split between those, those two funds. Uh, we allowed the worker uh, to, to invest half of their Social Security taxes privately. Now, this was in line with a plan that the Cato Institute put forward several years ago called the 6.2% solution. It was later introduced in legislation by uh, uh, Jeff Flake of Arizona, along with Pat Toomey, who was then in the House, and Sam Johnson, who was then in the House. Uh, they put together a piece of legislation based on this was introduced to allow workers to take their half of the Social Security tax and invest that privately. So whatever the Social Security tax was that year, today is 12.4%, so when they retired, it the last thing they invested was 6.2%. But if you back it up, at some points it was lower than the 6.2%. It was always half of whatever the Social Security uh, payroll tax was. Uh, that's what they invested. The remaining portion of the Social Security payroll tax uh, continued to be paid as a tax, and it was a pure tax, earning no benefits. Uh, the tax at that point was used, uh, half of it was used to pay for survivors and disability benefits, uh, and the other half was essentially a transition tax. It essentially helped finance current retirees' benefits while the younger workers were allowed to, to invest privately. So this was all based on the, on the previous uh, Cato plan. Uh, a couple of other assumptions that we made. Uh, contributions were made on December 31st of each year. Essentially, the, uh, this was done as to do an administration simplification. Uh, your contributions would be collected in the aggregate, held essentially in a money market fund on a dollarized basis, and then on December 31st of each year, it would be transferred uh, at the opening of the, stock, of the bell at that point into the uh, whatever fund it was that you, uh, that you chose. Uh, we assumed that administrative costs would be 25 basis points, uh, which is about midpoint on the various estimates that we've seen. Uh, Social Security Administration has been using 40 basis points. Uh, Bill Shipman from State Street suggested 10 basis points. 
uh, in a paper that, that he did. Uh, we thought, thought 25 basis points, uh, given uh, current technology, is probably about, about right. Uh, we looked at the uh, administrative cost for a number of funds that were about the size of what we were talking about, and 25 basis points came in pretty much where the private funds were charging now. Uh, particularly when you did the simplification that we did with the aggregating and a single deposit being made. So we looked at 25 basis points for the, uh, for the administrative costs. And then, of course, you're going to have to annuitize this at retirement. And we uh, took an annuity factor of 6%. So the, uh, the annuitizer, the company that turns it into an annuity, uh, takes 6% of your total uh, aggregate at that point uh, as a fee for turning this into an annuity. Uh, so you contribute half of your Social Security payroll taxes. You do that over 40 years every year on December 31st. Every year you pay 25 basis points in administrative fee. At retirement on November 7th, when you retire, you take whatever you've got gathered at that point, the accumulation in your account. You turn that into an annuity that will pay a monthly benefit. And the company that annuitizes it takes 6% of that accumulation as a fee. And we said, how does this, in turn, then compare to Social Security? Uh, I'm not sure you can see all this. I'm actually going to walk over, but you can hear my, my voice. I want to be able to point out the numbers here a little bit. I've got a better chart than this. But for the high-earned income individual, uh, they, if they retired under Social Security, that high-income individual right now could expect $2,000 and $33 in terms of what they're going to get paid from Social Security. That's what Social Security currently promises them. They're retiring now. We're assuming they get their entire benefit from Social Security, no reduction benefit. They get $2,033 from Social Security. If they had invested that 6.5% or that half of Social Security taxes in stocks over that 40-year period, they would be able to purchase an annuity at retirement that would pay them $4,586. Uh, if they put it all in bonds, the, the, the lowest risk, lowest return ever, they would be able to purchase an annuity paying them $2,539 uh, compared, again, to Social Security's $2,033. So they, that high-income worker would obviously be much better off the private investment. But what about the low-income worker, the person who we said it was making half median wage in this country. Well, <coughs> if they put their money in stuff, they, they would promise they'll get from Social Security just $891 a month. That low-income worker is not going to get a whole lot from Social Security. $891 is all they get in terms of Social Security benefits. But if they put that money in stocks uh, over that period of time, despite all the volatility in the stock market, at retirement, they would be able to purchase an annuity that paid them $1,287 a month. Uh, which is about $300 more each month for Social Security. For somebody earning half the median wage, $300 a month is a significant increase. I mean, it's, a, it's almost a third more in terms of Social Security benefits than they're getting now. Uh, in fact, even for that low-wage worker, even if that low-wage worker had invested entirely in bonds, they would still get $896 uh, in terms of an annuity uh, which is, you know, a couple few dollars more than, uh, than Social Security would pay. In no case would any of them have gotten less in terms of benefits than Social Security would provide. 
Uh, this is just some graphical. Uh, whoops. Uh, look at the same thing. This is for the, uh, the high-income individual. Uh, again, Social Security's actual benefits is over on the far left-hand column, the lowest column. Uh, you can see that basically moving down from all stocks, 50-50, and then down to uh, the, uh, I have to play with these a little bit better here, uh, down to the uh, all bonds uh, portfolio at the end there. Uh, this is for the, uh, let's try it for a medium income individual. Again, you can see the, uh, the, the downgrade. Social Security provides lower benefits than, uh, despite no matter what uh, investment portfolio you choose. Social Security provides lower benefits than private investment. And for the low-income individual, uh, we have it again, so about the same with bonds and, and, low, and, uh, and Social Security. They're about a wash. If they put any of their money at all in stocks, that low-income individual does much better. Now, this doesn't count the other benefits, of course, which would accrue to these individuals, namely that uh, this money would be inheritable. Uh, if that low-income individual dies, uh, they could pass that on to their spouse or to their heirs or charity or wherever they want to, want to give it, whereas current Social Security benefits, uh, you know, when you die, they just disappear. Uh, so, and about, you have particularly about one out of every four people, one out of every three African Americans pays into Social Security and then dies before they collect benefits. Uh, so that would be a significant uh, increased benefit there uh, that we can look at. Uh, we do want to offer a couple of caveats to this analysis. Uh, there are a couple of limitations to this type of analysis. Uh, first of all, uh, this is a retrospective, not a prospective analysis. Uh, we looked at what actually took place over that 40 years previously. Now that, you know, gets us out of the realm of speculation. There's no, <clears throat> well, you know, Social Security, you know, or markets will do this, Social Security will do that. We assumed everybody got all their Social Security benefits, and we actually had actual returns from the market, not our projected returns. Now, so, you know, we're pretty confident in those past numbers. Problem, of course, with that going forward is past performance, as they say, is no guarantee of, uh, of, uh, of future returns. Uh, and we don't know that in the future markets will return exactly what they returned in the past over any given period of time. And in fact, uh, the Social Security Administration and others suggest that we may be seeing an average return in the future. Uh, there's technical reasons which I can answer if anybody wants to know, but about a point less on average than, uh, than what's being returned. Uh, in the past on, on returns. It's been about 7.5% on average from private capital investment in the past. It's suggested it may be around 6.5% uh, going forward. However, even a, you know, given the, uh, the margin that you had on those, uh, those equity returns, how much higher people were getting in benefits uh, from the private investment, even if you had a percentage point lower uh, annual return, you would still end up with significantly better benefits uh, from equities than you would from Social Security, and the bonds would not be as significantly changed uh, in the future going, going forward from the estimates that, that were provided. Uh, <clears throat> this one's a little more significant. Uh, our estimates were based on a single male worker. Uh, if you had, in particular, a, two, a uh, single earner couple, your results would be somewhat different. 
Uh, single, uh, there's a spousal benefit, which provides basically that single earner couple with 150% of their Social Security benefits. Uh, so if you had a case where you had a couple and one spouse never worked, never contributed anything into the Social Security system, so their entire life they were outside the Social Security system, uh, and then they were, they were married, of course, so at retirement, the, uh, the spouse collects uh, the spousal benefit from Social Security. You would get significantly different benefit uh, results on this, particularly for the low-income couple in that position. You are liable to see higher Social Security benefits than the bond fund. Uh, not than the equities, but than the bond fund uh, you're liable to see. Uh, so you, we do, you do have to look at that. Now, that is a rapidly declining group. Only 13% of retirees fit that definition today, uh, that they are single earner couples, low income, and the spouse has never contributed to Social Security. That is going down every year. Uh, so you could project into the future that's going to be a very small group uh, that you might have to make some sort of arrangements for. Uh, if they chose the bond fund to deal with, but that is, that is there. <clears throat> we also did not figure in <clears throat> transition costs and how those would be allocated into this. Now, to some degree we did because we do have the 6.2% that continues into the current system, half of which, about 3%, 3.3% goes to pay for tra sort of a transition tax. That will not pay all the transition for a 6.2% diversion there would have to be some additional way of dealing with that. And how that is allocated uh, could affect your returns, <clears throat> at least in theory. For example, if you assume that markets for a high income earner bring 7.5% return, and you then impose a 7.5% tax on equity returns on high income individuals to pay the transition, they would net out zero. <laughs> So, you, so, I mean, in various, you know, whether you do it as an income tax, whether you do it as reduction in benefits, whatever, however you're going to treat that transition, it will have an impact on exactly what returns people earn and how, the, how returns net out over time. Uh, <clears throat> we think that that's not a significant problem looking at this overall because if you're liable to do it through any sort of additional revenue, uh, that is likely to fall on the higher income people rather than lower income people, particularly if you do it through any sort of income tax. Uh, they were the people who had the biggest bump from private investment. Uh, so they, are the, they, they would be fine. Lower income people would be less likely to be impacted. Uh, so their returns would still likely exceed Social Security uh, as you move forward. Uh, in addition, while we didn't take into account the transition cost, we also assumed that Social Security continues to pay promised benefits going forward, which it can't. Uh, transition costs are often in many ways a misnomer. They are simply a recognition that Social Security can't pay its promised benefits going forward, and they simply move that cost forward and, and, and apply it today rather than applying it in the future against, against future earners. Uh, so we just simply didn't count either side of that equation. But exactly how you allocate it and who you allocate it to could have some impact uh, ultimately on, on the returns. Uh, think that that's it. I'm going to, going to uh, leave off the experiment there. Uh, I wanted to walk you all through it so you saw exactly where our numbers are. There is a paper out front, a policy paper called Still a Better Deal that you can find. It walks you through this in detail, provides all the charts uh, that I just showed you that shows them in detail. The important point to make is that this experiment shows sort of 
definitively, I think, that the argument that is made that as a, just as a, that the recent volatility in the market, that market declines we saw in the last few years, the recession and all that, automatically disproves the value of personal accounts. The argument is made that says just kind of ipso facto that if you, you know, we would, people would have lost everything, they would have been starving, they would have been eating cat food, personal accounts just doesn't work. All you have to do is look at the past few years and you can see that they don't work. But we think that this experiment just proves that that argument, that whole line of argument simply is not correct. That if you look at actual results of actual people who would have invested during that period of time, they would not have been worse off. They would not have been eating cat food. They would not have starved. In fact, they actually still would have been better off privately investing than they would have in Social Security. This suggests to us that going forward, when Social Security gets back on the table, which it will have to do because it can't pay its promised benefits, that it means that we should reconsider personal accounts as part of the solution. There's a lot of reasons to discuss them. There's things you can argue pro and con about them. But the argument that says that markets are too risky, that you're going to end up eating cat food, that shouldn't be part of the discussion. That's just untrue. Uh, anyway, I'm going to leave it with that, and I'd be happy to open it up to any questions that anyone might have at this point.